0: You are listening to Single Service. My name is Arno Martire, and I am your host. Single Service is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. John Stoddard is a service design consultant and teacher based in the Bay Area, helping organizations create high-value customer experiences. He's worked with many organizations and firms in the past, most notably IDEO in their London and Palo Alto offices. He's also an educator, having taught at UC Berkeley and University of San Francisco. So John and I are getting together today to talk about service design, what it is and how that relates to architecture. So thank you very much, John, for being on the show.
1: Hi, Arthur. it's uh, great to be with you.
0: So can you tell us who you are and what you do in your own words in three sentences or less?
1: Okay, I wrote it down just to try and be uh, concise. All right, so um, I should start by saying, I believe all companies are service businesses and that's That means they are creating customer relationships which lead to recurring revenue rather than the old style of business based on transactions. And we can talk more about what that all means. But basically, uh, the key to providing uh, a wonderful service is the customer experience. And that's what I do. I design services with a better customer experience than existed before. Um, or um, improve uh, customer experiences that have problems. So I'm a consultant. I work with companies and uh, organizations um, to help them understand their customers better and find a way to um, respond to those customer needs um, in a a way that is uh, more, um, more careful about understanding those needs and more careful about how to deliver um, those um, responses to those needs, normally as a service. And since um, in the current business world where I operate, um, everything is a service these days. um, That's where I focus, the customer experience.
0: So my next question was going to be, what is service design? I believe you've already pretty much answered that. Is there anything you want to add to it to maybe make it a little more clear?
1: Um, I think it's worth exploring the, the word service for a little bit mm-hmm. um, in the in the old world uh, and I'm talking mainly about business um, then in in the old world then customer service was what happened to fix problems for for customers someone buys a product maybe in a store they take it home um, it breaks or they have a problem with it they go back to customer service that's the old. Meaning of customer service, which was fixing problems um, with products, particularly. Um, or you're you're not happy with the service you get on the phone and you complain about it. You talk normally with customer service. But um, the what really kind of happened with the internet in particular was that um, companies realised that providing support for their customers when they um, they buy something, purchase something from them. That was part of the product, really. So um, you might, you know, you might buy um, a television um, and you you take it home and um, you, you want to be able to kind of use it immediately, use it easily. Um, so um, you expect that television to be intuitive in how you use it. Um, you, you might, um, in some products you, you feel you should read the instruction book. And that is if you like training. And then, um, when you're using it, um, you, you have a particular goal in mind, um, for what you're trying to do. You could be doing something for yourself or doing something for other people. Um, so that again is a service. So. So creating a product and supporting it with training, uh, making it easy to buy, making it uh, easy to uh, maybe uh, uh, kind of use, in fact, um, that, that's all part of the product these days. And so what's happened is products have become expanded in, uh, into services. And um, of course, services have always existed. You know, a restaurant is a service. Um, but economists have always had a problem trying to figure out what is a restaurant, for example. Is it a service providing um, you know, the, uh, an environment and, and um, people that help you uh, have a meal That's a service? Or is it a manufacturer because they, they make food uh, and you can even buy that food and take it away? It's a product. So, um, what's happened is the old economic divisions between um, the, the two sectors, service and product. That's all evaporated. That that division, um, thanks to technology, really. So the internet made people aware that it's not just the product; it's really the whole journey that you go on when you um, you buy a, what we used to call a product, um, <clears throat> and that that requires a new attitude and a new approach from companies that used to be thinking of themselves as manufacturers, for example. And now they have to take responsibility take responsibility for the whole of that journey, and they're glad to actually, because it leads to a closer relationship with their customer. So service used to mean um, you know uh, limited support for products. and what happened was products, and services merged. And, and now the service is really what companies do.
0: Yeah, and your, your restaurant example is a, is a fascinating one because, and I'm not an expert in the field, but when you describe what they're offering, I wouldn't say it's neither a service nor a product. It's an experience. Yes. It's really what yeah. people buy. Is the quality of the experience, and the food is just a tiny portion of it.
1: That's true. Uh, you. I think it maybe it's more than that as well. I mean the experience is how you deliver the service, I would say. Mm-hmm. But there's performance as well. Okay. That's that food has got to be nourishing, for example. Um, it's gotta be safe. Um and so there's performance is what there's what the thing does, what the restaurant does, what the food does, um, and and then there's how you do it. And the how you do it, I regard it as the service. You're, you're enabling people to achieve something, um, which is a definition of a service, really.
0: Mm-hmm. So why so, is... so yes,
1: the experience... I'm sorry. When, you, when you're designing a service, mm. you're, you're, a, a large part of it is designing how you deliver the service, which is the experience, as you say.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So why is service design important in your mind?
1: Well... Uh, it's what i observe happening in in business and in the world really um if you you have a choice between two companies trying to sell you something you're going to go with the company that provides a better experience the mm-hmm. better service
2: mm-hmm. um
1: and if you if you buy a product and um you find it's hard to use um and you or you find that um it feels like it's designed for someone else rather than you. That's that's bad service. It's going to lose your customers from that company's point of view. So um, really, the service is where you meet your customer and how you create a relationship is just going to last over time. And so um, another word for that is the brand relationship very often. So we're used to the idea of... Um, being loyal to a brand, you know, you you get to know a brand you feel is is a good fit for you, and you return to that brand when you want to expand what you what you're doing mm-hmm. um, in, in some way. Um, and so that um, that um, relationship is provided through service, and, and therefore you, the the success. And survival of any company these days, I believe, is down to the quality of service they design and deliver,
2: which
0: is no small feat because it's an incredibly complex problem to solve. Really,
1: it is. Fortunately, there you know there's a process to to get there, um, and one of the best processes around is called design thinking, and that's what I do. Um, I apply design thinking, which was. Uh, you know, a customer-focused approach to creating a service um, that was formulated, I would say, principally by IDEO. Uh, And so I gained a lot of experience when I was working there on working with different sorts of customer, different sorts of industry, different sorts of cultures, um, which all affect how you design a service.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So... How would those principles and ideas apply to the world of architecture and interior design?
1: Well, I would maintain that a building is a service delivery device, okay. Let me unpack that a little bit. Um, we In the old world, we had products okay let 's say a mobile phone. That mobile phone evolved, and along came the iPhone.
2: Mm
1: which was a product that delivered services in a great way. Mm -hmm. The the previous products were not, they were about delivering a service, but very limited phone calls, basically. And they couldn't quite deal with the internet. The iPhone, when Apple created it, they realized the phone was about delivering services. And that's what they created, a device for delivering services. And, A service, as I was mentioning before, it's about enabling people to do things. It's about providing a capability, not just an object or a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so buildings are things. They're solid, um, like a product. But I regard them as service in solid form. So uh, a hospital, for example, it's very easy to see how that only exists to provide healthcare services. It's a service delivery device in a way. Um, you could look at maybe people's homes. Um, now, what, what the architect and the building designer is doing is creating an environment which allows a family or the occupant to to do things, to achieve their goals. And so clearly the, the architect and building designer is providing a service to their clients for instance, in the case of the hospital, but also to, to homeowners, they're providing uh, a service. And so the home is delivering the architect's service. And in many cases, it's allowing their client to deliver a service. And so uh, you have the situation that occurs in the, in the business world of a to c mm-hmm. going on there. Um, so a business supplies a business, which supplies a, a customer uh, or consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, so however you look at it, to, in my mind, a, a building is about enabling people by providing a service. It's a service-providing device. Therefore, that service needs designing in such a way that it's a, a great experience, as you mentioned before. Um And and therefore, designing the the building as if it's an object is, you know, that shows concern for the client, the architect's client. But um, it really means you have to go much further and think about all the people who use that building and think about the journey they go on and the experience they have um, as you're designing the building. Because it's about enabling those people. It's about providing a service to those people. So architects should be thinking about service design. And I have to say that that's not something these days that you can do without training. Okay. In the same way that, you know, do you remember the days when uh, software kind of took over in products? Um, and initially that software. User, user interface, the interaction was was designed by industrial designers at first mm-hmm. um, because it was an extension of making the product nice to use um, and safe to use and so on. So the first wave of, of any new discipline is done by the existing disciplines. But pretty soon, you need people who are trained and have experience. Now, in, in my case, I was lucky. I had my training at IDEO and a lot of experience there. Um, But these days, there are service designers coming out of college, and uh, that includes business schools these days. Um, And they are professionally trained service designers, and they should be in, in the architect's team. They should be in the building designer's team if they're going to design the experience and design the service to a professional level, which these days means global, you know, world-class, really.
0: Yeah, I can tell you from experience, there are a few, if any, firms that have service designers on staff. So while you were answering the question, the, the idea occurred to me that basically buildings would be the real-world equivalent to software. It's an interface for people to accomplish certain tasks or goals. Is that fair yeah, to sure. characterize
1: it that well, you, way? Yeah. Well, it's hardware and software, right? Um And so... Those two things, hardware and software, are quite often part of providing a service.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you need that other element, which is how you deliver the software and how you deliver the the hardware. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a phrase in the in the product design world. Um, they talk about software as service. Yeah, yeah, and I think you could say you could talk about architecture as service. You could talk about building, buildings as service. Now, um, the software um, equivalent is, is maybe going off in a slightly different direction to the service, I think, because as buildings become intelligent you know, through AI, through machine learning, through machine vision, through touchless interaction, through behavioral interaction, um, as buildings become smart, then they do have their own software, um, and that's kind of behind the scenes, I think. So I would. You're prefer talking about a literal see...
0: software. Yeah,
1: or... yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you know, I worked with a startup in Silicon Valley called U Space,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we were exploring um, machine vision and machine learning, which allowed a space to be monitored. Um, by infrared some rather than cameras by the way, mm-hmm. such that people's behavior could be monitored because the the space was mapping those people. It was mapping their shape and how they moved, so that the building, the room, could interpret people's behavior. So in that case, the space becomes interactive. And and so that's a AI based software. And so um you know, in in the past, we needed physical things to 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 allow buildings to interact with people. You know, we needed doorbells, we needed sensors on doors. Um, you know, we needed um, um, maybe a, a reception desk and uh, someone behind the desk and a telephone if you're in an airport to to try and get help. All these things are physical ways to allow a building to respond to people, but with, um, with spatial monitoring, um, machine vision, then the, the space merely uses um, invisible infrared, for example, um, to be able to uh, respond to people. So you, in the case of the U-Space, we were exploring what happens if you walk into a store you know how, when you you might go into a department store and you 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 want to maybe head to the let's say the furniture department and you you, you go to that department and you want to inquire about um, you know the the furniture that's there. You the first thing you do is look around for an assistant, a sales assistant to help you, perhaps. Um, and um, so, when you do that. You're behaving in a certain way. If you watch someone walk into that furniture department and look around in a certain way, you can read their behaviour, and you can tell that they are looking for help. And that's what an, an AI system can do. So in that case, the store can respond to people and bring humans into the picture as needed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's what I mean by you know buildings having software.
0: Yeah. So if if service design principles and concepts can be applied and maybe should be applied to architecture and interior design, why in your mind are so many buildings perf- performing poorly and not providing the service they're meant to?
1: I think it's um, it's a kind of lack of um, input from... The, their customers from their users, really. They're, they're limiting the users they're thinking about, perhaps. And, um, you know, perhaps they're thinking about their clients, certainly. And they're, and they're thinking at a broad level about people. You know, they're thinking about people walking into a hospital. Um, but people don't exist, actually. The world is made up of individuals, and they all have different needs and different culture and, and, um, kind of, uh, those needs, are, are more than a place to sit and wait, for example, in the reception area. Um, their needs are, um, I've got an urgent problem. I need help right now. Or, um, I've come here, um, to see a relative who's very sick and I don't know where to go, um, or how to make contact with them. What do I do? So every individual has, uh, a need. And so uh, this is tough, but what architects and building designers need to do is figure out what are the main needs of their main customers. They've got to decide which customers are priority and which ones, so therefore they need a lot of focus on those people, uh, and which customers um, are the kind of next level down in terms of the attention they need. So um, if In the world of um, business, um, you know, you've got to get down to a much more granular understanding of your customer and your users compared to the old approach, the old marketing approach, you know, where you'd categorize people by the hundred. Um, Whereas in this new world of, of customer experience and service design, you've got to get down to individual uh, individuals and what are their real needs. and then you have to figure out what are the priorities, what are all the different needs and how do you respond to them all? Um, you, I mean you do find that, that that those needs break down into main categories. So it's not as if you end up with you know 10,000 different customer needs. It normally breaks down into uh, a, a hierarchy of needs. Um, and if you're wise, you'll figure out what's the top priority, um, which means then you have to figure out, okay, what business are we in really? So you have to figure out, and you may find that, you know, that hospital is, is really two businesses in one maybe. And then you, then you figure out, okay, so the first thing we have to do is help people decide, are they this type of customer or that type of customer when they arrive? You know, so instead of having one parking lot, for instance, for all patients, you might decide uh, to to, um, to have uh, you know different parking lots for different types of patient, um, with a with a, a different way of a different path for those people as they come into the hospital. So um, that leads to more ideas about how a hospital should be designed. So it actually once you start going deeper into people's needs, it's not just a question of signage in the hospital. It becomes, how do you structure the hospital? Do you have two hospitals, urgent and non-urgent? You know, So it can get quite fundamental. Um, and um, the trick is definitely to figure out what is your building really about? Okay, if it's an office building, It's not about providing an environment for people to work on office stuff. It's that the people in that building are trying to achieve something, and your building should help them achieve that, which means you have to understand what those people are trying to do. And that's a challenge if the building is going to change its purpose over time, for example. Then you design a building that's flexible. So it gets quite fundamental very quickly. Is this making sense? Yeah.
0: Yeah absolutely um, so if you had a magic wand and you could change the way architecture is practiced conceived or delivered what would you do based on on your expertise and what you know about service design
1: well um, I believe building design would get would be better if um, the designers took an experiential approach and a service approach. So design the service experience as they're giving form to the building and everything associated with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to, to do that, the magic wand would be to hire service designers or work with service designers. You don't have to hire people at first. You know, there are lots of service design consultants, like myself, mm-hmm. um, who can work with an organization on a project basis um, and um, and then the building designers can can see how to best fit that new way of thinking, that new way of designing into their practice. So that's, that would be my magic wand, I think, would be find service design partners right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Are you aware of any architecture and design projects being uh, designed that way with service designers on the, on the teams?
1: Well, it's kind of happening the other way, in my experience. Now, I, I, I have not worked um, with an architectural practice, actually. Um, my approach to service design came out of product design. Mm-hmm. And I know that in that world, you know, the the what I regard as leading design and innovation firms like IDEO and Frog Design and and some many others, well, not too many others, but some, they are um, actually spreading and and expanding what they do to go beyond the the normal boundaries.
2: Mm -hmm. So
1: if someone approaches an innovation firm that takes this approach, um, then that company is going to start asking questions, which expands the question the problem you're solving um so um an example so um i worked with a firm in china a little while ago um they have a chain of stores and the uh, founder of that company they have quite a few stores they asked me to help them figure out how to improve their customer experience um and, and they they do a really good job, they're very successful, but they wanted to compete with online sales, for example, in their stores. And normally, you know, um, stores can get decimated by online sales mm-hmm. unless you have something to offer, which gives people a, go, a reason to go to the stores. Yeah. And so that's what I worked on with them. Uh, and so um, I started off by asking, okay, so why do people go to your stores now? And, and they said to to buy what we sell, and <laughs> as you can imagine, I then followed up with a lot of other questions to figure out um, what was going on. And, and we realized we needed to go and find out. Actually, so together with the CEO and founder, um, I went out, and, and other people in, in the in the management, we went out to the stores and we watched people, uh, we watched customers, we talked with customers, and we established why people going to the stores and we we found out that um for instance people were shopping quite often in pairs rather than individuals um shopping as pairs rather than individuals and and that was because the products being sold there were being purchased as gifts by Mm -hmm. one person for another Mm -hmm. in other words the people were not going there just to buy the products What they were doing was going to the store as part of celebrating uh, something. It could Mm -hmm. be a birthday or a a promotion. Um, They were helping someone um, celebrate something in their life. So in other words, the store was about celebration. And so when we looked at how the customer experience might be expanded in the future, might be improved in the future, um, that became the theme. for how the store was designed and how the staff behaved and what the experience was that people received. So if you go to a store for a celebration, that's very different from walking into a store to simply buy something. And so the store design was an expansion of of trying to think of um, you know the the customer experience. And um, so. That way of thinking has become the norm for innovation firms and design firms, um, and and they are expanding it into spaces and buildings and events um, and institutions. So once you adopt that approach, the boundaries don't make a lot of sense because you're you're looking across the whole experience. So in other words, architects may find that the world is maybe becomes part of something else. Mm. Yeah, that makes
0: sense. Uh, and it's fascinating to think that sooner than later, the practice of architecture could be completely transformed because someone else is coming and disrupted the industry, um,
1: hopefully for right. the better. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, when you think about industrialized buildings, um, something you've you've asked me about mm-hmm. um then you know the difference between a building and a product and the service it provides um means that you know it's it's kind of fragmented the old definition of building design
0: yeah and and it's kind of funny to think that in a world where every industry tends to become more and more productive over time find better ways to produce the same thing for uh, for cheaper or better at the same price. The yeah. architecture and construction industries have gone in the completely, complete opposite direction because the uh, the cost of construction keeps going up. Um, and it's due to a number of factors. Uh, we don't need to necessarily get into the details of that. But in spite of a boom in technology, which is the, the most mind-blowing thing, do you have any uh, idea why that is? Any kind of insights?
1: Well, buildings are, um, every building is a prototype in one way, isn't it? Um, and Unless you are, we are talking about modular and industrialized building, then um, buildings tend to be a, a one-off prototype. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, there's no pressure to um, kind of adopt new, new ways to do things if you can just kind of modify what you've always done um but um yeah i i think uh, there's a need in the building industry perhaps to step back and and figure out what are, what business are they really in um obviously architects go into architecture because they love creating architecture mm-hmm. um, and that's very understandable but to every hammer Everything is a nail and, yeah. and therefore um, there's a danger just in seeing every problem you're solving um, as a building. Um, and I, I think the great architects uh, don't fall into that trap necessarily and therefore they come up with a new approach to things. Mm-hmm.
0: That makes sense. I like to compare buildings and cars because cars used to be very much like building a 100 or so years ago. You'd buy a chassis with an engine, and then you'd go to a coach builder to, to make a custom body that's uniquely yours. And then we moved into the mass production of cars and then the mass customization where everybody buys the same car, but you can choose the color of your stitching and leather and interior and paint. Uh, while still buying, by and large, the same product. Um, do you think that's a, 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 an apt comparison and we could realistically expect buildings to eventually become like cars where you buy base module, like a, a chassis, and then you pick the color of the paint and you might pick some of the finishes, but by and large, it's the same structure and then everybody... Um, kind of lives in, in a similar environment, at least for, for most people who can't afford to have a, a prototype designed for themselves. And the the challenge in this industry is that there's been many attempts to do that. The, the biggest in recent times was a company called Katera who uh, was a huge business that aimed at Um, basically mass manufacturing buildings, at least uh, the elements, the the structural parts, and they failed. They went bankrupt, I think, last year. Um, And there's been many attempts before that. Is there anything inherently unique to the way we live, to buildings, to architecture, that would prevent us from taking some of those lessons from other mass manufactured products to make the design, production, and and sell of those products more efficient and and more cost-effective?
1: Well, uh, I think your description there, uh, comparison with automobiles, is a a little bit uh, black and white, I think. I think it's a little more complicated than that. I mean, when you were thinking of a a car, which one were you thinking of? Mine. I asked that. (laughs) Okay. Well, I asked that because... Um, there are many different types of car. And some cars try to be everything. Mm -hmm. So there is actually variety, even though there's mass production. Uh, And in the building industry, there's been flexibility and industrialization for hundreds of years, right? Based on this module called a brick. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure... That we need to be forced into a choice between prototypes and uniformity. Uh, I, that's it. Depends how you design the building. Um, you I, there are lots of different ways to construct a building. The framework and and chassis, you know, the chassis framework and body, which you mentioned, that's one way you could approach it. Um, and I think. Uh, some some architects have got close to that in a way. Um, other other people have gone a different direction and gone for the unified body, which is totally flexible, and you know it can be a, a van or it can be a, a sports car um, within the same unified body. So mm-hmm. um, I think it, it's the main thing is to figure out what problem you're solving. And then you'll find that there are different solutions depending on what you think the problem is. Um,
0: So 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 let's let's rephrase the question. If, based on the assumption that uh, each building being a prototype might be counterproductive or a waste of time and resources, what would be the solution to that problem?
1: Oh, I think we've already seen solutions uh, existing, I think. Um so you've got the one-off building which is the you know the the large expensive building. Mm-hmm. Um but then you have um mass produced homes in in this part of the world in the bay area we have Eichler homes you you may be familiar with them mm-hmm. uh, they're they're sort of a, 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 modernist but using a lot of natural materials combined
0: What's the name again?
1: Um Eichler EI C-H-L-E-R, was the uh, the architect entrepreneur who created them they mm-hmm. are standardized in many ways but because they they they're based on the philosophy of um uh, having minimum walls inside so that the space flows um, and having a lot of glass
2: mm-hmm.
1: so that the outside and the inside merge together so it's a small house but it feels big because you your the outside comes in as it, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, that's pretty standardised, um, and there are systems which I think get close to that. Now, that's one style. Um, you know, other people might prefer a more traditional style mm-hmm. home, but that's just a question of of uh, how you design the system, really. Um, so. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think there have been examples that have taken steps towards industrialization. But um, the- we have to recognize that to do it properly and thoroughly requires a huge amount of investment. You know, Tesla, they, they, he, re- he and his team rethought what an automobile is, but it did require $100 million to get started. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't know how much investment has been going into building systems. Probably a lot. Um, but I, I think we're at the early early days of figuring, figuring all that out. Um, and maybe in some parts of the world where a building lasts longer. Um, you know, in California, buildings have a very short life. Um, they're, de- they're designed to be easy to build and easy to take down. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think it's the same one.
0: In, in most of North America, um, and I've always wondered because I grew up in Europe, where centenarian buildings are very common—two, three, four, five hundred years, sometimes even more. And there are after—I think there's a threshold that before which buildings are considered old and not worth mm-hmm. keeping around. And then 150, 100, 150 years in, they become heritage or considered <laughs> right. worthy of keeping. And then after that, they're impossible to demolish um, because of the level of protection they benefit from. And that's not true everywhere, but that's, that's for sake of the argument, let's just say that's the way it works. I've always wondered why aren't we building for... Um, two three four hundred years because you could realistically very easily design a building to have the skeleton that lasts this long and then you just remodel parts of it or you reclad the facade to bring it up to the standards of the day Um, and I actually have a friend who who was a guest on this podcast who who started a business um, whose which um, mandate is part part of that's part of its mandate it's to make uh, the case, of the the financial or economic case that buildings that you keep around longer um, save money in the long run, instead of building and demolishing every fifty years. If even if you did that every one hundred and fifty years, and so she's developed a whole system of um, assessing the the quality and the state of a building that's very thorough and gives a instant snapshot into what the building is worth in the long term, like in terms of how useful it can be for the, the, the future. And that's generally um, one of her arguments is that the, the way buildings are financed, they're financed over the course of a few decades. I think it's 30 or 40 years, most mortgages, especially in the commercial world. So there's no incentive to think about what the building becomes after that, because once you've amortized it, paid it off, then you can either uh, sell it or demolish it and borrow again to build another one, Um, which leads to a whole bunch of issues in buildings that are being uh, oftentimes unnecessarily demolished. And I think that's one of the biggest problems we have, at least in North America. Europe might be a bit different because they have more of a tendency to keep things around.
1: But, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I you know, I put my service designer hat on, and I have to ask, what problem are you solving for which customer? okay <laughs> um, if it's if it's uh, say you're designing a hotel,
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay the the service that hotel provides could be change, could change over five years, ten years easily, right? Oh yeah. and yeah. and so this what the places people want to stay in, You know, look at Airbnb, uh, what is a hotel these days? So designing a hotel, it could be appropriate to design it in such a way that it could be easily changed um, quite radically within five years. But if you're designing someone's home in the country, you know, in the rural setting, then maybe it's appropriate that that becomes a family heritage thing which is passed on generation to generation and has great value by being uh, unchanging. Um, and then again, if you're designing um, a place for people to work in the city, is that a cafe? Um, you know, do you need a building necessarily? So um, it all depends. What's the problem you're solving, and for whom? Sure. And if. So you're, what, the thing you described sounds great, but maybe for some customers and not others. And what we have to do is be very careful: what problem we're solving, and for whom. Which is, mm-hmm. you know, the the two questions that every venture capitalist asks every startup. True. What problem are you solving? That's the first question they mm-hmm. ask. And and if you're not clear about that, then you haven't defined the problem enough. Um, and you're going to waste resources and waste time coming up with a, a great answer to the wrong problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, service design forces you really through its process to, to immediately ask, okay, which customers are we talking about here? Um, and not only now, but in the future. Um, you know, when I work with a company, they're, they're, and I ask them, who are your customers and what do they need? There's a tendency for them to be immediately thinking about their current customers. They're also thinking about what they provide now, which is probably irrelevant in the future. But, but you have to, to think about what customers will need in the future, because you want a strategy for your business that's going to yield wonderful innovations and, and products and services over a time scale. That is gives you a good return on investment. So, mm-hmm. so we have to think not only about the customers we're solving a problem for now, but which customers are we interested in in the future? Which could yeah, be different.
0: That makes a lot so, of sense.
1: And, yeah, and, uh, and the
0: hotel example you mentioned is, is entirely true because hotels are being re- refurbished every 10 years or so, maybe every 15 years. Um, but they don't necessarily the, demolish the whole building, they just redo the interiors. Right, um,
1: and they would prefer if they could change it once a year, I, su- I suggest. Probably, yeah. If because they've got to have a new message, right? They've got to have a new offering mm-hmm. compared to the competition. And so therefore, they've got to be able to adapt as quickly as someone running running a cafe or uh, providing, you know, entertainment experiences, for example.
0: Yeah, and and I think that takes us to one of the biggest problems I see in the industry is the lack of specialization. Most architects want to be generalists who are able to design anything and everything. And uh, I've been trying to convey the message for a few years now that specialization is a way forward because you can become the number one expert
1: at a specific typology. Uh, Well, I I would push back a little bit. I don't think they need to become specialized necessarily if their process allows them to come up with specialized understandings of the problem and specialized solutions. If if your process is smart enough, you can be a generalist.
0: Hmm. That's an interesting thought. Um, I I think that's all for the questions I have for you today. Is there uh, any parting thoughts you'd like to share with the listeners?
1: Um, I I think in talking with you, I've I've, I've become even more interested in thinking about uh, uh, buildings as a service. What happens if you think about going beyond how you provide a service within existing buildings or a conventionally defined buildings. But what happens if the building is strictly a service delivery device? Where would that take you in terms of how you design a building? I'd I, I like to think more about that. And um, that would, might be my parting shot, I think. Apart from um, advising building designers and architects to, to hire a service designer, as soon as they can, or or a service researcher. I mean, someone who's going to help them with a better understanding of their users and customers.
0: Yeah, or even um, take a training in service design to at least get a basic understanding of it.
1: You can, but uh, then you run up against run up against the problem that, um, you know, service design is not rocket science. Mm-hmm. It's harder than that. Okay, <laughs> because, um. It's like playing the violin. I could tell you how to play a violin in 30 seconds. Okay, mm-hmm. pretty simple, Take you know, pick up the instrument, put it under your chin, hold the fretboard, and run a bow across the strings, press down on the strings, there you go, That's the, those are the principles. Now, how long would it take you to get beautiful music out of that violin? Maybe years to become really proficient. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the slightly misleading thing with service design. It sounds simple, the principles are really simple, but to do it properly needs skills that evolve over time. And yes, you could be trained, but it's not like learning an Adobe tool, okay? It's, it's something which modifies your philosophy your approach, your way of looking at the world, and it takes a lot of practice to do it without slipping back into the old ways of doing things. So, yes, you can be trained, but it's going to mean going back to college to do a master's or something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I was saying that more in the sense of like getting a basic understanding so they know what to look for and who to hire and those kinds of things. Oh,
1: right. Yeah, yeah. That's the first thing, as you say. You've got to learn to understand what you don't know. Mm -hmm. So the problem is you start off by not knowing what you don't know.
0: But would you say that architects, as people well versed in the the art of designing things, are well positioned to learn about service design?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Because they're they're already problem solving. They're already thinking about how people react to a space and um, what what you know. They're able to visualize what it feels like to be in a space. They have all those those skills, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, Now they just have to kind of drill deeper. Yeah, Uh, yeah,
0: that makes sense. Well, uh, John, I want to thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk about service design. It was a very interesting conversation, and uh, hopefully the first of many. And also, hopefully, people um, open their eyes to what you had to say and maybe uh, reach out to you, other service designers, to have meaningful conversations.
1: Yeah, it's been great. Thank you very much for those uh, stimulating questions.
0: Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.